When you hear the word home, what's the first picture that comes to mind? I think all of us, when we hear home, we have a, a picture or a feeling or an emotion that's stirring. So what is it for you? For some of you, home is an address. Home is a place that you've lived before, a place that you've called home. For others of us, home is it's a place. Maybe it's where you grew up. Maybe it's the, the town that you grew up in and that you scored your first touchdown in or you, you had your first kiss or uh, you, you met your high school sweetheart. For others of us, it's a thing, like grandma's basement, right? Like the couch at grandma's house. My grandma's house didn't look like that, but grandma, I love your house. You know, it's the place where you'd fall asleep after school or you'd watch cartoons or whatever. I think we all have an idea of home. What's home for you? Pew Research Company asked this question to 2,200 people. And it was interesting that they found that only one out of five people see home as the place they live now. It means four out of five people see home as this other place. Maybe it was the place you grew up. Four out of ten, it was their home they grew up in. Another one out of five were, it was a place where you had experiences. So we all have this idea of home, and I think we're wired for home. God has wired each of us with a desire for home. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's community, some of it's belonging. But I also think one of the reasons that we see home the way we do is it's because it's the place we find rest. Maya Angelou, you know, the author, poet, wrote this. The ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are. And not be questioned. And I think if you guys think of home, it's that place. It's grandma's house. It's home where you can go and find rest. So we, we've been wired for home. And it might not even be the place that you live in now. But let me ask you, have you ever been far from home? Have you ever been in a time that maybe you served in the military? Or maybe you've been on a work assignment that took you all the way away and all you could do is eat barbecue in Austin, Texas for two weeks. But you're far from home and... Even in those little instances, you feel that desire to go home. What would happen if you were taken from your home and you felt that longing, that deep need to go home because you were far from home? Today, as we continue our journey through the greater story, we're going to see that the Israelites um, fractured into two nations and that the, both nations over the course of a couple hundred years get exiled. And we're going to focus in, zoom in on the, the, the nation of Judah. And we're going to see that the, the, the God's people, the Jews who lived in Judah, the southern kingdom, they get exiled by the Babylonians, and now they're far from home. They're 900 miles from home, and they couldn't go home if they wanted. But we're going to see in the midst of this that God speaks to them, and he gives them a promise. And I think there's so much for us to take away when you and I are in a season of life when we also feel far from home. If you've been with us the past few months, we've been walking through the kingdom of Israel, how it gets established, how God raises up. Uh, the people ask for a king, and then God raises up David, and we see Solomon. And last week we saw Solomon's son, Jeroboam. And because of his greed and pride, the nation splits. The northern kingdom, here's a picture of how it shook out. The northern kingdom, or the northern ten tribes of Israel, do their own thing. They fall into idolatry, and they get captured by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., and they get exiled, captive. 
couple uh, decades go by and things aren't going too swell for, for uh, Judea either. And the, the Jews in Judah, they get attacked by Babylon in 605, 607-ish B.C. And so I just want to camp out for a moment and let's walk through what happened and then we'll turn to Jeremiah 29. So if you want to flip there, you can to 2 Kings 24, very end of 2 Kings. It says this, 2 Kings chapter 24. In, the days, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So basically Babylon became a world force. They began conquering all the nations in the Middle East. They come to Israel, and, or they come to Judea, and they say to uh, the, the king of Judah, hey, basically you're going to pay us tax or we're going to destroy you. And so the king's like, okay, whatever it takes. And so they start paying tax. But three years later, uh, the, the king, Jehoiakim, doesn't like paying tax anymore, so he rebels. King, king Nebuchadnezzar, somebody say Nebuchadnezzar. It's easy to say, isn't it? So Nebi, give him a nickname here, old Neb. I don't know, I kind of like Neb better. So Nebuchadnezzar, he goes down and, and quells the uprising. And what he does is he takes back with him uh, a group of Judea's finest. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as you guys know them, Shad, Shack, and Nego. Those guys all go back, and then we can read the amazing stories in Daniel. So they all go back, and they become these people within the, really the, the advisory court. They're raised up to be for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so things okay for a while, and then a little bit later we see in 2 Kings 24, verse 10, at that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, so, so Neb sends his servants, and they go down to Jerusalem, and the city is besieged. So they carry. So they basically they come in in 597 um, BC. Jehoiakim dies. Jehoiachin, his son, takes over for three months. They come in 597 BC, and they basically take away everything. They carry away all the stuff from Jerusalem. Um, they take away 10,000 captives. So basically, they take almost all the people, and they take them back to Babylon, and then they put a figurehead king named Zedekiah in place. And so now. They've been exiled. So this is the second time that Nebuchadnezzar and his army comes and takes them back. So now the majority of the people who are living in Judah, especially in Jerusalem, are now gone, and they're living in Babylon. And basically, they just leave a bunch of poor people there to take care of the land. And so then Zedekiah decides that he doesn't want to do this either, so he rebels. And so notice this, 2 Kings verse, chapter 25, verse 1. In the ninth year of his reign... So this is about 586 B.C. Or Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and they basically they burn down the temple. They burn down the, the king's houses. They take all of the army, all of the military, all that's gone, and, and literally take everything back to Babylon. And then you see in verse 12, and they left the poorest people to be vine dressers and plowmen. So at this point, almost all of God's people are exiled. Assyria took the Israelites, and now all the Jews have been exiled, right? The guys, the people in Judea. And they're all living in Babylon, and can you imagine how they feel? They're far from home. They're 900 miles from home. And it's not like they can just hop on a train and head back. They can't just grab a chariot and say, I'm going to go visit Grandma. Like, they were stuck. Now, we do read from scholars that they weren't slaves, that they actually had a lot of freedom in Babylon, but they couldn't leave. They were part of this new society, this new community. And so imagine, I'm sure they're sitting here going, wait a second. Like, God, I thought we were your people. God, where are you? Like, you made all these promises. You, we read all these things that you wrote to King David about establishing his throne forever, and now our throne is gone. We're literally captive, in exile, far from home. 
God, what are you doing? Anybody feel like that now? And there's a chance in this room. Some of you are walking through a season and you're like, God, where are you? God, I feel like I should be somewhere different by now. God, that dream you put in my heart when I was 18, the career that you gifted me with those skills for, I'm not doing any of it. Where are you, God? Are your promises true? So I think we can all find ourselves there in the same spot, feeling like we're in exile. Now, as, as you continue to, to dive in the story, you, you will see that God used Babylon as a tool against Israel because for, for, for decades he had been sending prophets saying, Israel, get it together. Judah, get it together. Get faithful. Follow me. Stop falling into idolatry. Otherwise, you're going to experience consequences for your sin. And God allowed Babylon to come in and, and be that consequence. Exile was their consequence for their sin. And I think sometimes in our life, the exile we feel is the consequence for ours. But here's the beautiful thing. God doesn't leave us in those consequences forever. So imagine you're, you're in Babylon. You're, you're sitting there. You're, you're, you're waiting. Like, God, what's going on? You, you got, surely you're going to come rescue us, God. Where are you, God? And all of a sudden there's a letter from a prophet named Jeremiah. And the letter comes in to the elders. And this is the same prophet who told you for decades that God was going to send consequences if you didn't get your act together. So you open up the letter and you expect to see more bad news. But here's what you read instead. Let me ask you, what would stir in you? Notice what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Notice this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exile whom I have, what? Sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. From the start, God says, hey, guys, it was me. You want to know why you're there? It's not because Nebuchadnezzar's a bad guy. He is a bad guy. It's not, that's not the reason, though. Like, I allowed him to take you. I could have stopped Nebuchadnezzar, but I sent you into exile because you guys weren't faithful. So notice what he says. So now you're in exile. So here's what you should do. Verse 5. What would you think if you read this? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. Hold on, wait a second. So God, you're telling us that you allowed these guys to exile us into captivity and now you're telling us to make this our new home? You're telling us to build houses and have babies and pray for these bad guys? Like, hold on, God, what, what, what is this? And we're going to see what God says is, no, actually, this isn't your new home. This isn't your forever home. But instead, I want you to live well while you're there. Some of you have heard this quote before. It's by um, St. Francis Desai. And he's quoted as saying this, bloom where you're planted. But don't, and some of, we love that on a coffee cup or a little planter on the window seal. Bloom where you're planted. Now imagine you're a, a Jew in Babylon and you hear what God just said, bloom where you're planted. What are you going to say, right? You're not like, okay, God, sounds good. You're like, no, I want to go home. But God says, bloom where you're planted. Make the best of where you are now. You know, I don't know about you, but I think back to different seasons in my life when there was some influx or there was some uncertainty, and all I could think about was the final destination, right? Like, I remember being in seminary, or some of you guys are in college, and you're getting near to graduating. All you can think about is where you're going to be. 
And you never think about the next step. You're always thinking about four or five steps down the road. Anybody have that issue? You're like, where's my, you know, you're like 22 and you're like, I want to build my forever home. You're like, no, you need to live in an apartment for a while, right? You just save up some money. If you're 22 and you guys want to talk, we can talk later. But take it from the 41-year-old guy. Like, we always want to know our final destination, but I think a lot of times God's saying, you can't know that yet. Just trust me with your next destination. And and so I I think in this story that we see here is is that there is this thread that God weaves together through the entire greater story about a desire for home. And one of our hopes in doing this series is that you guys begin to see these threads and you can start to pull at them and you see God's word unfold. I want you to think with me, back to the very beginning, back to January, if you guys can think back that far. I know you slept since then. But back in January, we talked about beginnings. We talked about Genesis. We talked about the garden. What was the purpose of the garden in Eden? It was to be home for mankind, right? Home to experience God. And, of course, sin broke that. But then what happens? God God tries to help people learn to live and follow him, and they decide to build their own home, and the flood comes, and now God takes Noah and his family and says, you guys are going to be my people. Go and, and scatter around the world and build your homes. What did they do? They built a tower, didn't they? They said, no, God, we know what's better for us. We're going to build our own home. And so God says, no, 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 you, you need to build your own homes. And so God scatters them into their own homes. What, what does God do when he, when he meets Abraham? He says, Abraham, I'm going to take you to the promised land, which is going to be your, what, church? Home. And then God takes Abraham and his people. They, get, um, they, they end up falling into slavery in Egypt. And what does God do? He sends Moses and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to deliver you back to the promised land, which is your home. And, and so now they go back to the promised land and Joshua takes them across to their home. And then God gives them right before that the tabernacle, which is the, the reimagining of the Garden of Eden, which is going to be where God makes his what? Home with his people. And then we see Solomon builds God's house, his temple, where God's going to reside. And here's where God's going to be found with his people. There's this idea of home running all throughout the Bible. It's the reason that you desire home. It's the reason that you long for home. It's the reason that if you don't like where you live now, that you know there's a better home. And there's a reason why even if you love your forever home where you live now that you built when you were 22, you still know there's a better home. But yet there's another thread that runs throughout the Bible. And I hope you guys are seeing it too. It's the thread that God will often use exile He'll often use these things when we find ourselves drifting away from our faithfulness in him. There's this thread that God is wanting to show us that we have a true home that we desire more so than these homes that we try to build. So think of Adam and Eve, right? They're in the garden. They're in their home. Very beginning, what do they do? They sin. They say, God, we know what's better. We will make our own home. We will build our own house. And God says, okay, well, then you're going to have to be exiled from the garden. So then after the flood, God says, guys, go scatter and build your new homes. They said, no, God, we know what's better for us. We're going to build our own home. We're going to do our own thing, and we're going to build a tower. What was that tower called? Babel. Interesting, huh? that interesting? Hold on to that. What does God do? He goes, oh, guys, okay, this is not what's best for you. I'm going to confuse your language and scatter you guys. So you guys will go to another home. That's exile. God exiled them from Babel and told them to find new homes. It's the Tower of Babel. 
And so then God creates his people. He calls them out of Egypt. He gives them a new home in the promised land, but they're not faithful. What are they saying? God, thank you, but we want to build our own home. God, we know what's best. We want to build our own house. And God says, ah, once again, I'm going to have to use exile to try to shape your hearts again. And who does he use to exile Israel this time? The Babylonians, which was started at the Tower of Babel. Isn't it interesting how God works? It's come full circle now. He exiled them from Babel, and then he uses Babylon to exile them from their homes to help them see that God has something better for them, that God's way is best. And so when you see this thread of exile, pull at it. Because exile is synonymous with the human condition, with sin, with our desire to tell God that we know what is best, that we can build our own house. And God is saying, guys, my plan is the only one that ever works. Just look through your history. And the same is true for us. Where are you guys trying to build your own home? Where are you reading God's plan for your lives and saying, God, I know this is what you want for me, but actually I'm going to build my own house my own way. And for some of you that have done that, you guys have experienced the consequences of that, right? And you're like, okay, God, you're right. But yeah, we do it over and over again. Why is that? And so I, I think what, what we're going to see here is that God is, is trying to show us through exile that the only way to truly find a home is finding a home in him. So, so back to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah writes this letter. He sends it to Babylon. And he says, guys, look back at verse 5 and 7 if you have your Bibles. He says, guys, how do you want to learn to live in exile? How do you want to feel at home while you're far from home? Build houses. Get married. Have babies. Have your kids get married. Have your kids have babies. Like, get involved in life. Serve. Get in the community. Pray for the city that you live in. Interesting, isn't it? it? Seems to make sense, right? You know, sometimes Christians get in our holy huddles, right? And we're like, well, I, I really, really can't experience, I'm, I'm not like in this community around me. I'm just going to huddle up with my Christians, and I'm not going to have any friends that aren't Christians, and I'm not even going to leave my house because something bad could happen out there. And God's saying, what? Like, I have you where you live, build a house, get married, have grandkids and serve the community and pray for the city. Get outside the door and get outside the church and go be my people. He sent 10,000 Jews into a nation of people that worship false idols. Like, how much good could they have done if they just got out in the streets and started meeting people and going to barbecues and hanging out and watching the Broncos lose games? <laughs> Sorry about that. Old habit, you guys are going to win at least a few this year. I'm just kidding. It's going to be a great season. You guys are going to the Super Bowl. So we, I'm serious, though. God's like, step into this thing, right? Live it out. I told you guys this before. You know, you, you look at when Christianity moved into, into Roman culture, and a lot of people will say, well, it was when um, Constantinople made Christianity legal. And that's when Christianity really took off, because it was legal. They forced people to be Christians. That's not true. If you've read that, it's not true. Yes, he made Christianity legal because he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, right, basically. But what made Christianity prevalent in Roman culture was Christian marriage. Men and women put their faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden, they stopped sleeping around. They stopped having multiple concubines. They started being faithful, and people are going, wait, what, you can do that? That actually works? Like, you guys are holding hands at the movies? Like, really? And all of a sudden, culture changed in over hundreds of years. 
Christianity spread like wildfire. It's Christian culture. God used this exile to shape the hearts of the Jews. And here's what's funny. When, when they went back, yeah, God uses exile to redirect our hearts. When they went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, they never fell into idolatry again. They got legalistic. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But they never fell into idolatry again. This exile actually redirected their hearts for a while. And we'll get there. You've seen this, right? This is how it goes. So yeah, God can use exile to redirect our hearts. But here's the deal. If you guys are always trying to find a way out of your exile, then you're going to miss what God is trying to teach you. So how in your life right now do you feel far from home? And what could God be using that to teach you? I think one of the realities is you're always going to feel a little in exile because you, or if you've said yes to Jesus as a believer, because the earth is in our home. It's like C.S. Lewis says, right? When like nothing in this world can satisfy your desires, the only explanation is that you were made for another world. And so we have eternity on our hearts, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3. Like we, we, we know that we are meant for more than this. We were meant for the garden. We were meant for a world that wasn't broken. And so we have this desire for a world that's better. And so as Christians, we do live in exile. Like Denver is our home. Colorado is your home. Wherever you live is your home. But yet you were made for something better. And God is using us as salt and as light. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to show us the way home. And the way home is through him. And so when Jesus came down and showed us that way and then gave his life for us to pay for our sin and then rose from the grave to show us that new life is available to in, in him, what Jesus is saying to you is when you say yes to me, I'm going to lead you to a home where you will ultimately find rest, which is what home is all about. And, and I encourage you if, you, if you've been playing with the idea of saying yes to Jesus or if you've never said yes to Jesus, Say yes today. Go home. Because today, if you say yes to Jesus today, and for those of us that have said yes to Jesus, we are on the path home. And it's going to be so beautiful when we get there. But we can experience as much home as we can experience now. And it's only found through Jesus. And, And so God sends this letter through Jeremiah, to say, be faithful, bloom where you're planted. Here's your purpose. You may not be there forever, but while you're here, live well. And then God gives them the promise, the coffee cup verse. Look with me here. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. That's what you guys have all been waiting for, isn't it? You guys are ready for me to tell you how this applies for you guys today, aren't you? All right, so here we go. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I read that fast because I don't want you to think about that one yet. Okay? Hold on to that verse. Don't, don't think about it. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Moment of honesty. How many of you have a coffee cup with that verse on it at home? Really? None of you guys? You guys are a bunch of Calvinists. (laughs) Just kidding. How many of you have a wall hanging at home? Nobody? Man, I got one. She was like this. It's okay. It's a great verse. 
There it is. I like it in the back. It's a great verse. Hold on to this verse. It's good. I'm not going to ruin it for you, I promise. Darren might ruin it for you on the podcast, but I'm not going to ruin it for you today, I promise. But so, so God gives him this, this promise, and this is one of the most famous promises in the Bible. This is the one that's probably on the most coffee cups in Christian bookstores. You guys go over to Mardell. But what does this promise mean? And here's the better question. Who's this promise for, right? Well, specifically, this promise is for the Jews living in exile in Babylon in 586 B.C. Like, this is written to them. This promise from Jeremiah is written to them. And God is saying, look, I have a plan for you. I have an amazing future for you. And if you're a Calvinist, I love you. I'm not making fun of Calvinists. By the way, I love Arminians too. I love everybody. Anyways, I needed to say that to clarify here so they don't send any emails. So what, what is going on, though, is God said, I have a plan to bring you back home. I have a plan to take you back to your, the place that you came from. But just not yet. But this plan is going to be beautiful. And so God writes this promise to them. And so here's a question. As we read our Bibles, as we begin to understand everything, we have to ask the question, like, how do we understand promises in context? What promises are written to, eat, to me? What promises were written to them? And what promises are not meant for us at all? And so I, I think we have to learn to read promises within the context of how they're written. For instance, I'm going to just throw three at you real quick. Here's the question. Is this written to us, for us, or not about us? Okay? I'm going to ask you guys. Pop quiz. Okay? Philippians 4, 7. When, when Paul says, look, when you're anxious, go to God in prayer and, and, and supplication with gratitude, and God will give you the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Okay? Beautiful promise. One of my favorites. Is that to us, for us, or not about us? Somebody say it out. You guys are good. Yeah, you guys are really good. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of Philippians who are being persecuted for the faith, who are being arrested and thrown into jail, and some of them are losing their life. And so he says, hey, Philippian church, stay strong. When you're anxious because the bad guys are banging at your door to arrest you and throw you into jail, pray to God, thank him for all the blessings he's given in your life, and you're going to get this ridiculous peace that surpasses understanding. That's written to them, but it's also for us. So that promise is true for us. No matter what you're going through, anxiety, different situations, job troubles, the, the henchmen at the door, it stays true for all of us. Okay, how about this one? Joshua 1.9. Remember this? We got talked about this two months ago. Joshua's like, God, I don't know that I can go and go across the Jordan and fight these bad guys. They're so tall and their grapes are so big. And God's like, <laughs> God's like, didn't I tell you? Like, be strong and be courageous because the wine's really good, right? So trust me. And he says this, don't be dismayed for the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. To us, for us or not about us. Two for two. Good job. Yeah, he's writing to Joshua. He's saying, Joshua, you guys are going to go fight these big giant Canaanites, but I'm with you. But it's also for us. Like, hey, guys, be strong and be courageous because if you know God, if you know Jesus, that you have a relationship with the Almighty, I'm with you. Okay, two weeks ago we talked about King Solomon. God told Solomon this in 1 Kings 9. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. To us, for us, or not about us. Not about us. Three for three. You guys, go get a donut on your way out. You guys did good. Three for three. So you did good, right? That's not about us. That's just God is promising to Solomon. And so we got to learn to read promises in the Bible in context to understand, are they to us, for us, or not about us? And so what about this one in Jeremiah 29? 
Who's it to? The Jews in Babylon. And he's saying to them, I have a plan for you, a plan to bring you out of exile, a plan for you to prosper, a plan for you to have a future, a plan for you to go back home. So it's to them, but is it for us? Yes, it for sure is. Don't, some people will tell you it's not, but it is. It, it is. It's for us. Because here's what God is saying. Here's the question. Does God have a plan for his people? Does God have a plan for his church? Does Jesus come and give you the abundant life and teach you the best path for life? Then does God want you to prosper? Does God want you to have a future? Does God have a plan? Yes. So then this promise is for you, that God has a future for you. So if you're taking notes, write this down. While not all of God's promises are written to us, most are still true for us. So learn to process God's promises like this, and you're going to see that there's so much encouragement in the middle of this. And here's what I love about what God is saying here, is he's saying, hey, 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 Jews in Babylon, hey, Christian in Denver, I have not forgotten about you. Like, I, I, I have not forgotten about you. You feel like I have because you feel like you're in exile, and you feel like I have because I'm not around from what you can see, but I am here, and I have not forgotten about you. I have a plan for you, and I sent you into exile to shape your hearts, but that doesn't mean I don't want what's good for you. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, the Lord not only thinks of you, I gave him the wrong initial, but C.H. Spurgeon, by the way. I quote C.S. Lewis way too often. (laughs) C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, the Lord not only thinks of you, but towards you. His thoughts are all drifting your way. Think about that. God doesn't just remember you or occasionally passingly think about you. His thoughts are drifting towards you. God thinks towards you. Here's another thing to write down if you're taking notes. This promise shows us that God doesn't just remember us. He thinks about what's best for us. Think about this. This week you're driving in your car and you have a thought and your thought's about Todd. And you're like, man, I wonder how Todd's doing. You remembered Todd, right? Todd's a good guy. Man, I wonder how he's doing. How would that be different if this week you're driving in your car and you go, man, I wonder how Todd's doing. I'm going to send him a gift card to his favorite restaurant. I'm going to send him a text and tell him, hey, brother, I'm thinking about you, and I love you, man, and I hope that God is moving in your life in a mighty way. You remembered him. That was great. But did you think about him? Were your thoughts drifting towards him? Did you want what was best for him? When God thinks of you, he's not just like, eh. God wants what's best for you. His thoughts are drifting towards you. God is thinking about the best plan for you. And he wants you to see that this book is what gives you the best plan for life. And spending time with Jesus each day is what helps shape and mold your heart. So you can learn to follow him. Because that's the only path that's going to ever take you home. And so God is wanting us to to see this in his promises. And so I love that, that beautiful promise that God's thoughts are drifting towards us. But there's something that we can't miss before we close. And it's what happened. I read it fast in verse 10. Look back. Before God even tells them the promise. Notice that God doesn't ever leave us hanging, by the way, either. God's not like, I've got this plan for you, and it's going to be great in the future. When's it going to happen, God? I mean, I don't know. Good luck. Just wait. No. God's like, hey, guys, before I even tell you the plan, just so you know, 70 years you got to wait for this. Like, in 70 years, I've got a plan for you. It's not as encouraging a verse on the coffee cup. You guys probably don't have that one on your wall hanging, do you? No? It's just 11. So verse 10 is probably not included. God's like, hey, guys, in 70 years, I've got this great plan for you. 
And, and I think if you imagine you're reading this, right? And you're an older Jew in Babylon, and you see it says 70 years. You're like, whoa, hold on, back up. How many years? 70 months? I can get behind. 70 years? Like, God, you're going to keep your promise in 70 years? And sometimes we're really hopeful of what God is doing. We feel like there's momentum in our life. We feel like God's really growing us and, and shaping us. And all of a sudden, we don't get the result we were hoping for. And then our faith gets shook. And I think God's going, well, why? I didn't tell you when. I just told you that I would. Because God, his timing is perfect. How do we say it around here? God is rarely early, but he's never. That's right. It might seem like he's always late, but he's never late. And so God says, guys, I want exile to shape you. I want you to impact this culture. I want you to do these beautiful things. And in 70 years, I'm going to bring you home. In 70 years, I'm going to take you back. Not all of them went back. Some of them stayed. You see that in the story of Esther and Mordecai. But a lot of them went home. And we'll see that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra next week. So I, I want to I wrap up our time here like this. And I want to invite, I wanna invite uh, the band back on stage as we, as we get ready to finish is this. Where in your life do you feel like you're in exile right now? Where do you, in your life do you feel like you're far from home? Where in your life do you feel like you're missing that, that wiring, that deep feeling inside of your heart? Because could it be that God is trying to tell you today that you got to stop waiting and you got to start living? See, you might be in a place right now where you're like, well, I, I don't have enough money to buy that house yet, or I don't, I don't have enough, I'm not sure that we're ready to have kids yet, or I'm not sure that I'm ready to retire yet, or I'm not sure that I'm ready to step out and share my faith yet. And God is saying, while you're here, bloom where you're planted. While you're here, live your life. Stop waiting. Stop sitting on your hands and not doing anything, hoping for somebody to knock on your door or lightning to strike. Instead, just get out and live. It's going to be messy. It's going to be weird. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. But what God wants you to do is to live and to be the salt and the light of Jesus wherever you're planted. See, I think one of our biggest issues is this. So often in life, we wrap up our identity and what we do, and where we live, and what we have. And so our identity becomes, I'm a, I'm a pastor at Forefront Church, and I like to preach. And that becomes my identity. Or your identity can be whatever you do, or whatever you think you're good at, or whatever you want to be. But the problem is, when you wrap your identity up in those things, and all of a sudden it doesn't come through, and you lose your job, or you get an illness, or you're not as good as you thought you were at what you thought you were good at, it shakes your identity and now you're lost and you feel far from home and you're trying to fill your identity by whatever culture is trying to tell you it's all about. What if your identity wasn't any of those things? What if your identity wasn't where you live and what you do and what you're good at and what you like? What if your identity was that you were created to live in relationship with your heavenly father and your identity is you were designed to be a son and daughter of God? And that instead it was your calling that was the things that you were good at and the things that you enjoyed and the things God has gifted you with. And your assignment is where God has planted you right now. And whether that's Jerusalem or that's Babylon, whether that's Denver or Littleton, what, what would it look like if we started looking through the lens of my identity isn't what I do, but it's who God says I am. 
and my calling is, the intersection of what I'm good at and what God has gifted me at and what I like. And my assignment is where I am. So what that means, church, is that my identity today is not forefront church. It's not even being a pastor. My identity is being a son of God, redeemed, rescued, saved, freed, and on the path of life. And my calling is that God has called me to be in the ministry. And my assignment is forefront church. And that means that your identity is not what you do for a career or where you live. Your identity is son and daughter of God. And your calling is what you're good at and what God has gifted you for and what you love. And your assignment is wherever you're at right now. Imagine if you processed everything through that. You know what that would mean? It means you could bloom where you're planted. Forefront, let's be people who find our identity in God. And do what he's called us to do, to build houses and have babies and pray for the city and go out and be light and be salt wherever God has us right now. It's my challenge for us this week. Let's shift our priorities. Let's find our identity and who God has called us to be. Would you pray with me?